Oh shit, here we go again. Welcome to the Millennial Mastery Podcast. Open your mind's eye. You're a traitor, yelled the boy. You're a thought criminal. You're a Eurasian spy. I'll shoot you. I'll vaporize you. I'll send you to the salt mines. Suddenly, they were both sleeping around him, shouting, traitor, thought criminal, the little girl imitating her brother in every movement. It was somehow slightly frightening, like the gambling of tiger cubs, which will soon grow up into man-eaters. Welcome to Millennial Mustreets. This is our very first episode. I'm Jose. I'm Gabriel. And today we're going to talk about our very first special book. Uh, the first book on our first Millennial Must Read list is 1984 by George Orwell, a classic piece of literature that might be more relevant today than ever. Um, I think it's fair to say that we're really excited to do this. This is a passion project that we've been thinking about for quite a while now. And yeah, we're really happy to finally be able to bring this out into the world. Absolutely, man. Uh, we're recording this podcast because, well, first off, it's something that we're doing for fun. But secondly, it's a privilege to be able to read many exciting new books and discuss them with one of your best friends. We're also doing this because we're interested in subjects like literature, history, politics, and general world affairs. And I think books can further your understanding on all these subjects and give you a broader worldview. Yeah, exactly. The books that will be discussed in this podcast could be of any genre, fiction, nonfiction, books, essays, whatever we believe could be of general interest. And very first disclaimer, we are not literature scholars. The, <laughs> the books and the discussions about this book will just be from our casual point of view. And they might not even fall under the strict definition of a quote-unquote must-read, but uh, still are books that we decided to read for ourselves. And uh, yeah, we just want to share our experiences with this book with, with the audience and the world. So, without further ado, let's introduce our audience to the strange world of 1984. Gabe, would you do me the honors? 1984 is one of those books that you constantly hear about. It seems to still be very relevant to our world situation, even if it was published more than 70 years ago. It's a cautionary tale about the dangers of totalitarianism, a mass surveillance state, and the importance of freedom of speech and language in the process of thinking itself. Yeah, I, I personally hadn't read this book before, but I saw how it was referenced a lot in comparison with various news stories. I remember it being referenced in regard to the social credit system that is implemented in China, also with that alternative facts news story from the Trump administration. And whenever you hear a news article about uh, censorship on, on different platforms, such as social media, 1984 is, is, is constantly being referenced. And uh, yeah, I'm actually really glad I, I had the opportunity to, to read this book. There were definitely some very heavy subjects that were touched upon that uh, really made me reflect on, on the current world situation. And as an individual, it does really have a, a very gloomy and grim atmosphere, but that made me like it even more. But I can definitely see how some people think it's, it's dark and depressing. I actually read this in high school. It was, I didn't really understand it more than, you know, there was a sex scene and it was, you know, dystopian novel, quote unquote. But going back and reading it, I've really noticed a lot of themes that I really didn't catch on to. And I would say that anybody that had read this in high school 
maybe should go back and read it again because going back with an adult's eye really shines a different light on it. Uh, coming from America, I really always thought the setting is maybe like Nazi Germany or Russia or something like that. But now that I'm reading it and now that I'm outside of America, I'm really looking at it more as a criticism of totalitarianism and fascism in general and how that can even affect places like America. I mean, America today. Yeah, America today. Okay. Absolutely. But I mean, even even up to Cold War America, I mean, it, like, for example, right, we're looking at Oceania and they're constantly at war with Eurasia or East Asia or somebody. And nobody can remember not being at war. Well, I mean, look at America. Um, America hasn't been out of a war footing since 1940, what, two? Since Pearl Harbor? Uh, I mean, you don't know. I'm, I'm Colombian. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I understand that feeling. And, well, something I wanted to add is that I think this podcast is good, could be useful for, for anybody who or hasn't read the book or maybe has has read the book and still wants to you know listen to another take on what they might gotten or get a fresh new uh, a refresher on a great piece of literature that exists out there yeah absolutely so i think before we actually get into 1984 proper we should probably introduce the author um, george orwell an extremely famous author especially in contemporary literature so the name George Orwell is actually a pseudonym. He was actually born Eric Arthur Blair in 1903, and he was born to a what he described as lower, upper, middle-class family. He ended up growing up and joining the police, but decided to quit to become an author. And during his time writing, he actually volunteered to fight the Franco regime in Spain. and. It's, it was during this time that Orwell really solidified his political views and really decided to, to dedicate his writing to uh, anti-totalitarianism and uh, pro-socialism. Uh, in fact, actually, Orwell was pretty well known as a hardcore leftist. Even though he believed in the ideology of Marx, he was a very staunch uh, opponent of Stalin and his regime in the Soviet Union. Um, 1984 actually was an outright criticism of the Stalinist regime, and he went as far as to make Big Brother's likeness Joseph Stalin, and it, it, that was something that I didn't realize until reading about it. You hear about this strong, black-haired, mustachioed man. But you don't really put Stalin's face on it until you know you really think about it. Orwell would go on to write several essays and 12 books, uh, the most well-known of which were indisputably Animal Farm in 1984. Uh, 1984, however, uh, was actually his last book because he died less than a year later to tuberculosis. Rest in peace, my friend. Rest in power, King. Great. So um, let's get into the actual book itself. 1984 starts with our protagonist, Winston Smith, walking through the streets of London which is the capital city of Airstrip 1 now. It's not longer called England, it's Airstrip 1 now. One of the third, it is the third most populated province of Oceania, one of the three super states that conform the world in, in this book. And from the very beginning, we can see that Winston lives in a mass surveillance state. There are microphones hidden everywhere, constant patrols, telescreens, so um, televisions that include a camera. 
are on every corner, even in, in people's homes. Privacy in this book is obviously a thing of the past. The, the state of Oceania is controlled by a totalitarian regime called INGSOC, which stands for English Socialism. And this regime has successfully divided society in three different classes. The inner party, which could be seen as the upper class, the outer party, which are, is the new middle class, and the proles that in this book can be considered the lower class. For the two upper classes, total and complete devotion and subordination to the party was mandatory. You had to live for the party. Individuality was a crime. Being critical of the system was a crime. Even having negative thoughts about the party was a crime. Life for the proles, um, the, the lower class in this book, however, was a little different. They were the majority of the population with about 85% and did, did all the hard work. Agriculture, mining, factory jobs, etc. But they were not as strictly monitored as the upper two classes. However, they, they still needed to be kept happy. And the state of Oceania did that by just providing the minimum necessary so that they wouldn't rebel. In, in this world, you can see that maintaining that totalitarian status quo for so long made the lower class of, of this country very docile. In, in the book, they describe them like sheep that would just blindly follow the commands of the party. Multiple times in the book, they were compared to animals because they could indulge in, in promiscuity, alcoholism, drug trafficking, racketeering, etc. Like I said, <laughs> life for the pros was, was very different. But for Winston, the, the pros were more human than party members because of that reason. They, they could really give into that human instinct and emotion. But on the other hand, it didn't really matter because as long as they were kept illiterate and their basic necessities would be met, they couldn't even imagine starting a rebellion. Not even the older ones could remember a time, uh, a pastime where things were better. Like everybody just accepted the status quo and the world how it was. Our man Winston, however, he's a little bit of a rebel. He was skeptical about the ways of the party and the way society worked. He wasn't satisfied with the status quo. The party operated under three axioms. First, war is peace. Second, freedom is slavery. And third, ignorance is strength. We'll get into these in further detail later on. One of the first aspects that we wanted to highlight was the existence of Newspeak, which is a made-up language that was being developed by the party. The purpose of this language was to eradicate dissent and rebellion from speech itself so that it would be made harder to even form coherent thoughts on how to insubordinate or criticize the party. It was a tool to suppress thinking. You can't express yourself properly if there are no words for the thoughts in your head. Words that contained concepts such as freedom, equality, justice, and honor were all being banned. And, you know, they, there, there are a couple examples of these in the book. Um, some of them are just really strange words like double plus ungood. Instead of saying super duper bad, you'd say double plus ungood. Oh, and uh, it's yeah, sort of like ungood, ungood was uh, their word for bad, right? But it still had good in it, so it would never be really as bad as bad sounds. It's just ungood. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like when you're when you're trying to you know criticize somebody, you don't want them to take it too bad, so you sandwich it between two compliments. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, and and they had so very different uh, concepts for for that new speak. And it just, like, 
there were three different vocabularies. One was just their day-to-day vocabulary and then political vocabulary and scientific vocabulary. But the goal of, of Newspeak was, uh, how you mentioned, to really curb thinking, you know, and that just gives us an, a bit of insight into the importance of language in our thinking process. Absolutely, man. So when we're talking about the importance of language, I think we should also be able to tie this into what we're seeing in society nowadays. I mean, like the blurry lines of censorship in social media. I think that it's it's become almost a you're almost walking on the razor's edge on what you can and can't say and how companies or even entire national governments deem your conversations morality or legality. I mean, that just shows that language is very tied to our, to our thought process. Like, there's this argument, I guess, even made in the book that if you don't have the word for something, you, you can't even really think about it, you know? And then uh, in, in modern days, I think you you would have the, the debate between if we ban certain words, you know, or, or make them punishable through hate speech legislation or whatever, or, or banning accounts who use those words, then that might be our solution on of curbing these thoughts. And yeah, in, in, in modern society, it's, it's not about a words that contain concepts of freedom or equality. It's obviously mostly focused on, on racism, discrimination, violence, etc., etc. But uh, I think there, there's a certain point of comparison that can be made regardless. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we should also talk about, of course, we're not talking about everybody, you know, wearing white hoods or, you know, swastika bands. You know, they're... There, there, there is a, a line that has to be drawn at what stage free speech uh, can't be regulated. I agree with you, but still, that would be a, a philosophical debate. I mean, because <laughs> there's obviously schools of thought that think that everything should be allowed to say, to be said. You know, you would just suffer your social consequences from it, but government shouldn't interfere in that. But uh, when it comes to 1984, I think the the structure of the vocabulary was also very interesting because you had uh, words like, what do you say was was bad? Double plus ungood? <laughs> Double plus ungood, yeah. It was, uh, it's, it, instead of saying horrible or really truly bad, you'd say double plus ungood because ungood is a word for bad. I mean, it just, like mentioned, shows the importance of language in, in our thinking process. And uh, in, in this particular book, that was the, the main purpose of Newspeak, just to suppress thought and take away all these concepts that were went against party ideology to, to make people more docile and obedient and subordinate and just give them more of that Kool-Aid. That sweet, sweet Kool-Aid. Another important thing is that Winston doesn't just stop with having critical thoughts. He goes a step further and buys himself a diary, something that could be punishable by law. He knows that he can be arrested, tortured, sent to a forced labor camp, or even killed for just having an empty diary. Yet he takes the risk of even writing in it. His diary becomes the tool of rebellion. It's like a moment of escape from the oppression that he lives in every day. It's his way of feeling free. And it's his way of confessing his sins. Like, for example, he 
um, he writes in it about the time that he met a prostitute in the parole district where um, and it's it's quite a dark you know retelling of it because he's talking about you know this it was this obviously quite old woman just caked in makeup she's just like she's just there to have sex for gin essentially and even though it's not really outright illegal to have a, uh, to be caught with a prostitute in fact it's kind of implied that the party wants to wants you to do that to sort of get rid of your sexual urges I mean, it could still be punished by going to a labor camp for a couple of years. This was his way of writing history. For another example, he right at the beginning of the novel, he's talking about a news story that he saw about refugees being killed by a helicopter, literally just like an attack helicopter coming in and killing them and televising it for public entertainment. Through this diary, he wanted to send the message, a message to be heard. And he wanted it to be seen by somebody. And I think specifically, he wanted it to be seen by O'Brien, who maybe we should introduce right now. Um, O'Brien is essentially a mysterious character inside the inner party. Winston has said that he's seen him maybe a dozen times in a decade. Yeah, they, they work in the same place, right? Yeah, they, they, work, they work in the same building. He, he sees him extremely seldomly. He doesn't know what he does, really, but he feels like maybe O'Brien is like on the level with him just from the way that like he looks at him sometimes. Having a diary made him a bit more reckless. Sorry, Winston, I should say. Having a diary made Winston feel a bit more reckless. But it was also brave. Um, in his diary, he found the courage to speak up. But why was Winston trying to write down some history? <laughs> well, you see, our man Winston, he worked in the Ministry of Truth, one of the four government branches in Oceania. There was the Ministry of Peace, which concerned itself with war, because Oceania was always at war, either with Eurasia or with East Asia, but it was a state of constant war since pretty much the beginning of the book. We know that there has been always a war going on. There was the Ministry of Love that was basically the police <laughs> plus KGB plus Guantanamo because they also handled torture and the jail cells. Uh, All rolled up into one balaclava. <laughs> yeah, uh, there was the, the Ministry of, Lo of Plenty, which handled the economic affairs, and the Ministry of Truth, where Winston worked, who was responsible for news, entertainment, education, even porn. Like, all sorts of media came, all media, actually. <laughs> all sorts of media and all media came out from the Ministry of Truth, which was basically the propaganda machine of the party. And they also had the task of controlling the past. Because for the party, he who controls the past controls the present and therefore the future. How did they do that? They did that by forging previous news and publications, censoring and reissuing books, newspapers, and like mentioned, all sorts of media, altering photographs to make sure some people never existed, something which uh, also, I, I like... <laughs> That, that also happened in the Soviet Union, right? Like Stalin would do that with photographs who had uh, traitors to the party in it and they would just magically disappear from the photograph. Oh yeah, and like straight up the KGB would just run up in your house at night and take everybody and you'd just go off to Siberia for the rest of your life. That was it. Yeah, Orwell was a visionary in that regard. And it was interesting for, for Winston's work because as soon as the party announced something that wasn't a part of previous records, uh, he had to alter these to fit them with the new narrative. 
for example, was it Oceania at war with East Asia or Eurasia? That would change, and people would remember that. But however, the official stance of the party was that the that Oceania has always been at war with one of those countries, or what was the expected chocolate ration output? Was it 30 or 20 grams? You know, if the party said it was 30, then he had to change it to 20 to make sure that it even, like, it was more than expected, and so they could pat themselves on the back. I mean, Winston's job was pretty much just, uh, yeah, just consisted in making sure the party was always right. So the complete control of records and history was one of the party's most important tools to keep power. People wouldn't know they were depressed or oppressed if they didn't have a point of comparison. For them, it had always been like that, probably always would be. And, you know, when we're talking about this, obviously, we have to talk about the importance of history or remembering. There is a bit in the book that I really found kind of poignant where there was, uh, they were talking about the Ministry of Plenty's forecast for boot production um, during this period. And they said that it was going to be, you know, 145 million pairs of boots were going to be produced. And then they made 50 or they made 62 million pairs of boots. So then Winston has to go and say that the quota was actually 57 million pairs of boots so that it made it sound like they had gone over their quota of production, which means that they did well. Now, he also says that there, nobody actually knows how many boots were produced in I mean, 57 million probably isn't right. 60 million isn't right. Certainly 145 million isn't right. I mean, there are probably no boots made at all. And the only, the only positive portion of it was that everybody looked good while half the country went without shoes. Well, that was and just it's like sort a, of, a theoretical part, you know, like it looked good on paper. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, was, it was all about making the party look good and having over-fulfilled quotas and stuff like that. It kind of reminded me of the... Uh, five-year plans in the Soviet Union, which were quotas for industry, infrastructure, capital goods, education, pretty much anything that could be produced or created in the Soviet Union was part of a five-year plan. The Soviet Union was actually really, really well known for just fudging the numbers all the time to make it seem like they were just like doing the best that they could all the time. Well, to this, there's also that part of, of people not really knowing if, if the past was better or the altering of history, because I think one contemporary issue that we face that has uh, similar characteristics could be definitely Holocaust denial. Like there is oh, yeah, so absolutely. much evidence that these things happened, yet people seem either unwilling. Yeah, I think it's unwilling or to just accept, reconsider a fact. Yeah, I mean, I, there it is. It is kind of. Uh, wild to think that some people just this this historical act you know that was carried out and that millions of people were affected by it just doesn't fit in with their political ideology so they decide it didn't exist it didn't happen at all it's a strange thing but like i said like it, it just shows you how, how important it is for for human advancement to to have these records and that they be consistent so that that we can remember what happened and maybe learn from it, you know, so so that we can truly know, not like uh, the people in Oceania, are we really better off? Like, have we as individuals or as a collective learned from our mistakes and are we working to make things better now than they used to be? 
But um, yeah, besides that, there were other characteristics of a totalitarian regime that Winston had to endure. Violence against other groups outside Oceania was glorified. There were public hangings for war prisoners and treasons to the party. In Oceania, there was a supreme leader, the Big Brother, the mustachioed man whose face you would see on every corner. Every piece of propaganda mentioned him. Every good thing that happened in Oceania was due to his superhuman abilities. He was the hero of all the stories, the living example of moral virtue. He was all-seeing, all-knowing, omnipotent. There was no religion in Oceania, but in this world, Big Brother was the closest thing to a god. He never appeared in public, but did video and radio broadcast, encouraging the people of Oceania, giving them the latest developments on their current world situation, and making sure everybody revered and feared him at the same time. There was an enemy to the state, a fellow called, named <laughs> Emmanuel Goldstein, which was basically the arch nemesis of Big Brother, a former party member who deserted and led an underground rebel organization and was the subject of the daily two minutes of hate, a strange ritual that was performed in everywhere in Yoshiana pretty much to brainwash and condition the masses. There were also forced disappearances, um, people would just vanish and all of the records were deleted, they would not be mentioned again, and basically ceased to exist. I mean, after that, they never existed at all, and that process was called vaporization. The party made sure to destroy any kind of social link. In Oceana, you couldn't have friends. You couldn't trust anybody enough because they would snitch on you to thought release and they'd get you vaporized. Relationships were a simple means to generate new party members. Uh, you'd need to get your marriage approved and it was regulated. Uh, sex would only serve as the purpose of procreation. Uh, enjoying it wasn't desired. And uh, in fact, before marriage, you'd have to live in chastity. Uh, kids would become so brainwashed and indoctrinated that they would rat out their parents for minor offenses. Affection for something other than the party was not desired. People stopped being individuals with their individual social bonds, and everybody else was just a comrade. Like one of his colleagues, Syme, he was considered a true believer of the party. In fact, he was kind of radical about it. Um, his job was to work on the newest and latest edition of Newspeak, but... Winston knew that he was too intelligent for his own sake and would probably be vaporized at one point or another, even being such a devout follower as he was. He said something that I found quite interesting, uh, something that stood out to me. True orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Unorthodoxy means unconsciousness. That's, that's another one of those <laughs> moments that make you really reflect in this book, because it, it just shows the, the importance of critical thought I think more as an individual that than as a collective at this point. Let's talk about those public executions, because that's grim, that's dark and gritty, and people would just go there, and it was a bit like their form of entertainment, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know what it kind of reminded me of? It reminded me of like the Roman Colosseum, like gladiators, or um, even the halftime show between gladiators. They would just take criminals and execute them in public and it was just considered like you know people people got their popcorn and watched people get executed in public and people thought it was normal back then and you know maybe maybe we think that we're a little bit more sensible now or whatever but i mean even just 
150 years ago, the right before the end of, you know, fashion of public executions, the largest one was somewhere around like 120,000 people went to go see this guy get like drawn and quartered. Like that is actually grim. <laughs> and, and I think that's, it, it, it is crazy that, you know, the, that we can, we're not that far from being, you know, in the worst timeline, essentially. Yeah, and I think it's, I, I mean, <laughs> you think about it and you conceptualize it as something from the past, completely barbaric, but I would say like for most part of history, people have been doing that. I mean, it's good. It's good that, that we're in a better place now where where we don't do that and we see it as, as something really <laughs> completely old-fashioned and barbaric and unnecessary. But uh, it's, I don't know. It, <laughs> I mean, we, we still did that, like human beings still did that. So the, there has to be this obsession for violence and just, you know, gore in us. Yeah, there must... It, it must be like some sort of instinct that we almost have to tamp down as, you know, people coming into an age of enlightenment. But, you know, maybe maybe that is the importance of critical thought is, you know, without it, we're just animals, you know? I agree. There was another important thing here that, that was the, the severance of social bonds. Like the party makes sure made sure that any sort of social connections you had was just shallow and superficial and you only had that connection because of the party like the party was the reason why you would have a wife in the first place or children and you know or you wouldn't even have friends you would just have comrades which could be your neighbor or your colleague or yeah what i found really interesting was that like if you were going to get a your marriage approved by the party they would specifically make sure that you weren't sexually attracted to your to your new wife. Like this is absolutely crazy. Like that it's I think it's this idea of, you know, um the party should be the only thing in your life that you have any real affection for. Everything else is just there. Yes, and uh well <laughs> women specifically seem to get the, the shitty end of the stick because I remember reading a passage where it was even like worse for the party that women enjoyed the sex. And Winston, he he had a wife at one point, <laughs> and I remember that uh, whenever they would have sex, she would call it her duty to the party because I mean it was just for procreation, and it wasn't that even that that she wanted some intimacy with her husband. <laughs> it was just a duty to the party. Yeah, man, this entire thing is pretty grim, isn't it? And in fact, the first part of this entire book is pretty much just grim world building. Um, nothing really substantial happens in terms of the plot, and we just get a deep insight into the world he inhabits with all its dark and gritty details. At the end of the first part, though, two things do happen that push the story forward. First, he re-enters the shop where he bought his diary and has a conversation with the shopkeeper, who's an antique dealer. He sells him a paperweight, and Winston sees in the shop a glimpse of the past and maybe a reminder that things might get, might have been better before, and if not, that they could get better at least. Right, and and uh, that was like a really fancy paperweight. It was made of coral or something. 
Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, and uh, well, as he walks out of the store, he noticed that he was being followed by one of his work colleagues or, or comrades. <laughs> it was a dark-haired girl that he used to see during the two minutes of hate. Um, he doesn't feel very comradely to her, does she? No, he, he really hated her. First, because he thinks that she's an orthodox. Like, he thinks she's completely brainwashed. She has swallowed all the Kool-Aid. You know, she's just a tool of the party. Well, and, in, and more interesting is that he hates her because she's pretty. Uh, she, she's young and pretty, and that makes him hate her. I guess he just hates her youthful beauty. And during, like, when he sees her during the, the two minutes of hate, he thinks of some pretty dark stuff. Like, later in the book, he confesses to her that uh, he wants to rape and murder her. <laughs> he wanted, he wanted, sorry. <laughs> he wanted to rape and murder her. He resented her because of his just uh, first impression of this person whom he had never spoken with, you know. So, yeah, he, he noticed that she's following him, but manages to, to shake her loose. But still, after that incident, he, he's very paranoid because there was no real reason why she would be there, he thinks. And she assumes that because she's such an orthodox, she is maybe part of the thought police or a spy or is, you know, looking for something. She wants to rat him out. He thinks that she might know she has a diary. Like, he's a deserter already. He knows <laughs> they're going to find dirt on him. And that's why he's so paranoid about her. He even thinks of murdering her that entire night again. <laughs> yeah, that night he, he can't really sleep. He feels paranoid because he knows he's guilty. Like, he has his diary and he's not very fond of the party. Still, uh, with his paranoia, he can only think of the three party axioms. Uh, war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. And with that, we're going to be going into part two. Uh, so I just want to get your thoughts on the story right now. So the first part of the book, I think, in terms of story, it, it doesn't really do much. For me, the first part of the book was just world building. You know, we, we're following Winston around on his daily routine, which isn't very exciting, but we're getting deep insights into what kind of world he inhabits. How is Oceania? How is society? How are the people around him? Like, what is good about it? <laughs> Not a lot. What is bad about it? <laughs> Almost everything. So it's just yeah, building up this this dystopian nightmare for me. Yeah, man, I don't know about you, but um, I'm not really the biggest fan of Winston. He doesn't seem like a very savory character to me, just, does he? I mean, he, it's, it's a lot of rape and murder with him, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's just in his thoughts for now. <laughs> but I think, like, in the first part, we, we just get a glimpse into the character, you know, and um, we, we start to... I think the the author, like Orwell, wanted us to show why uh, Winston wanted to rebel. You know, he's he's not like the other guys. He, I don't know if he's smarter, but like he's you know he's critical about it. He knows that things could be better, and that he might live actually in a, in a very shitty place. Yeah, you know what? That's absolutely fair. Maybe he feels like this. You know, maybe he's having these thoughts because he's. You know, he doesn't know how to take out his aggression any other way. And, you know, with Newspeak taking out all of the vocabulary that would make somebody be able to voice their discontent, the only thing that he can do is maybe corrupt what he sees as icons of the party, as, you know, orthodoxy, of chastity, of all this stuff. 
I mean, doesn't doesn't make it very nice, but I mean, you can at least understand why he might be driven to such things after you know living in a society, because because I think he lives in a society. He he <laughs> he absolutely does. No, but uh, I don't know. I think Winston, as for now, is a is a very realistic character because like he's not an action hero. Like, what do you expect from him if? tries to do something openly about his hatred for for the party and for Big Brother, he would instantly get arrested and uh, probably tortured and thrown in jail, sent to forced labor camp. And, you know, that's that's what is a little bit depressing about it. Like, this guy, you know, who, who obviously is bottling up all his feelings, you know, all his aggression, his hatred for people and the situation he lives in, like, <laughs> his way of rebelling is just writing things down on paper, you know, for no one to see. Like, that's how far he can go. You know, and that's still punishable. And and that just shows us how how screwed up this world of Oceania really is. Yeah, it really is, isn't it, man? Yup. Utterly dark and depressing. But... How about we go into the second part of this classic? Part two starts with Winston meeting the same girl from last night in the hallway at his workplace. Um, he's still really paranoid about the whole incident of last night, but she slides him something, and she realizes it's a note that says, uh, I love you. It's, just, it's still really confusing to him. He's still really paranoid, but I think that this moment really sort of uh, changes the tone of the book, because before... It's more about, you know, the world building, the sort of just creating the setting of the place where, you know, these characters live. And now it starts being more driven to characters. And yeah, the places that they are in still matter in the context of the story, but you still, you start to care more about the characters. So you mean like uh, Winston and, and his new crush, Julia? Yeah, absolutely. He managed to talk to her again, and they arranged their first date somewhere in the countryside of London. Now, they meet, and, well, they have sex for the first time. <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs> and uh, I think this is really interesting, because I think the sex isn't really an act of romance. In fact, Winston says something where he, she, she's talking about all the other party members she's slept with at this point, and she's really nonchalant about it. She says she's slept with scores of people. Like, that's like, <laughs> mul like multiples of 20 people. Oh my gosh. And so it's not about romance for him. And Winston even says, he says, like, I love you more, the, the more depraved and corrupted you are. And I think, I think this sort of goes back into how we felt about her during the two minutes hate. Like, he didn't he hated her because of what she stood for and that she and in the fact that she corrupts that image of herself he loves her more for it oh uh and, yeah so, so you're you're saying like a uh, part of why he has such a big crush on her now is because she isn't what he thought she was on the contrary she's like everything like completely the opposite of what of of his previous image of her yeah, exactly. Like, like Winston is a rebel, but Julia is so much more so a rebel. Like, she, she's in the the junior anti-sex league, but she fucks like 
<laughs> dozens of dude and dudes in the forest and like she's like on the black market and it's it she's honestly just crazy what do you mean on the black market like uh yeah like buy like, black uh, market goods yeah like she like she goes and she buys like a uh, chocolate and not like the shit party chocolate but like the actual nice chocolate uh, later on she gets uh bread sugar tea uh coffee And a dress, interestingly enough. And a lot of these things are, well, Julia at least says, is stuff from the inner party, which is implied to mean that, you know, these the people from the inner party have everything, whilst the people in the outer party have nothing, and the people in the, the, the people in the proletariat have, you know, something that's somewhere in the middle there. Yeah, so Julia, I think that the act of having sex, uh, Julia and Winston, becomes more of a political rebellion than anything else you know it's it's more about it's more like a statement right yeah it's it's more like a statement against the way that the party feels about pleasure i mean we talked about that before um the the role of of sex in the party society and i think that they're more like you know we're breaking the rules and we don't care you know what what are you going to do you know they're they, it's it's like they're they're not as brainwashed as the rest of the people around them. Really, in fact, Julia hates the party more than Winston. She's sort of a rebel, though, just for the sake of rebelling. She's not really doing it for any greater cause. She's not trying to, you know, take down the government or anything. She's just trying to be an individual. <laughs> All right. Um, and this is this is sort of maybe this is a critic criticism of the character of Julia for me. Like I didn't really I found that Julia as a character um, was more like a rebellious teenager. Like she's she's doing all of this stuff and she's she's corrupting the image of the party, but she's really only doing it to serve her own needs to try and rebel for the sake of rebelling. It's sort of like the way that a teenager watches an R-rated movie or smokes weed so that their parents would get mad at them. Interesting. Well, yeah, I remember that part. And I remember that in their continuous interactions, that was quite bothering for Winston I mean, he obviously liked that that she was rebellious and that she hated the party even more than than he did. But uh, Winston, like from from the viewpoint of Winston, he was a little bit frustrated with her because he felt that she wouldn't quite understand the reality that they were facing. He would often argue with her and try to explain why they 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 lived in, like why the world they inhabit was such a terrible place, and most of the time she would just not really care or it wouldn't even matter to her and yeah this, absolutely this really funny bit where where he tells her that oh she's just a rebel but from the waist down yeah exactly however that there was a really interesting quote in that part uh where he told her that and i quote the the worldview the of the party imposed itself most successfully on people incapable of understanding it they could be made to accept the most flagrant violations of reality because they never fully grasped the enormity of what was being demanded of them. Worst, they were not sufficiently interested in what was happening, and by lack of understanding, they remained sane. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that's something that's sort of really topical to the time that we live in. I mean, um, I think that a lot of government practices get away with as much as they do because people 
sort of in, insulate themselves from the things that are happening in the world. Like, for example, the I mean, let's let's just use for an example the the Trump administration. Like, Trump does so much dumb stuff all the time. And people just, at this point, they just ignore the things that Trump does. But at the same time, like, Trump is doing some really insidious stuff. Like, he's got some, like, essentially, like, immigrant concentration camps where they're just, like, detaining uh, children. They're not, they're they're trying children without legal counsel and all of this stuff. And it's absolutely not, but people don't want to think about it anymore. You know, they, they, like, they say, like... Yeah, I understand you. As an individual, at one point, you just get fed up. I mean, you're... You're you're facing that reality, but still you you have to deal with your normal life. You know you you have responsibilities. You probably have a job, maybe family. You know a wife, and and you have to deal with all that. And on top of it, do like some sort of your of your uh, citizen's duty or your civic duty to be informed of things and form an opinion and be aware of what's happening, so you can you know have some sort of do your part in the decision making of a country. It's hard. Like sometimes I get that when when it's just too much, and and some some days I just don't want to know anything about economics or politics or world affairs. Like I just want to shut down and don't do anything. Like I don't want to even think. I just want to <laughs> binge watch something on Netflix or play some video games, whatever. Yeah, man. I mean, I think it's I think it's a really natural, you know, uh, re- reflex for us to sort of compartmentalize our strains that we have on a society because i think that's the thing if we had to think about all of the things that were happening in the world that were going bad all the time i wouldn't want to get out of it in the morning <laughs> yeah definitely like it, it can be too much but that was winston's made criticism for her and and you could tell in the book that julia had a bit more fun in life because she was able to do that you know she she wasn't quite as bitter as winston i'd say because she still took even more risk, you know, in going to the black market and like being very promiscuous. But she just did it to to have fun because she could just turn that part of her brain off that said like, oh my gosh, I live in a completely dystopian nightmare and just trying to make the best of it while Winston was more aware of his surroundings and that I would say made him even more miserable. And you know what? Maybe there was something to Julia's acts as well because Julia's uh, Julia said even that the party's trying to channel the, the sex drive of human beings into political, fanatic, political fanaticism. And that's sort of why they um, have such stringent uh, rules on who you can marry and how you can't have sex before you're married. And they don't want you to be attracted to the person that you're married to. And it's just sort of drives everybody into a war fervor, essentially. So maybe the fact that she's, you know, fucking all the time just means that she's more laid back than everybody else and maybe that's why she doesn't Bro. care about that <laughs> that that could be a good interpretation you know <laughs> post not clarity constantly <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah she was yep. just a truly enlightened character <laughs> you know what I've, I've switched it up i like julia <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean eventually they they kept dating and formed sort sort of a relationship they even confessed each other that they loved each other with which is something that we're going to discuss at the end of the book because there are uh, different interpretations to their relationship. But both knew that it could not go on forever. They would eventually get caught, possibly die. Like It was not going to have a happy ending, and both knew that from the beginning. However, to extend their uh, romance, 
Winston convinced the shopkeeper where he bought his diary and the paperweight to rent him out a room upstairs in the antique shop. That room has a very special place in in the book. It takes a really special part because it became some sort of their safe haven from Big Brother. You know, there was no telescreen in the room. It was in the parole district where there was less thought police. It was a place where they could just relax be themselves, you know, they would buy a fancy tea, good coffee from the black market, like you said, chocolate, other items, like Julia bought for herself uh, a dress and makeup that you wear in the room. You know, it, it, it was a place where they were not miserable at, or as miserable as outside in, in the rest of Oceania. So I think that was a really interesting dynamic that was played out in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, dating each other, you know, or Julia dating Winston, I should say, made life worth living for themselves, you know? It seemed like they became a lot easier with each other. They became a lot less, at least Winston. I mean, Winston says he didn't need to drink as much anymore. He didn't, he didn't feel the need to, you know, escape what was happening in life because I guess maybe Julia made it living easier for him, you know? Well, for me... I, I actually liked the the romance part in the book because uh, it for me it shows the the influence that emotions and especially positive emotions like affection, care, love uh, can have of our lives and how these things can motivate us. And for them, it was basically their their primary motivation to hope for another day. You know, like else. I think it was really powerful in the book. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good interpretation to have from it. Maybe I'm a little bit too jaded, but. I sort of see Winston and Julia as not really loving each other, but sort of just using each other. Like, uh, like they're they're enjoying the time that they're having, and they're they're clearly attracted to each other. But I think it's I think they're using these times that they have not truly as a person would with their significant other, with somebody they you know they truly love, but really as a almost as they're each other's tools for the rebellion that they're, that they're seeking, you know? Okay. I, so maybe it's just, maybe it's instead of love, it's more a distraction. That's a, that's a very interesting take. I mean, eventually Winston met another of his colleagues. Uh, we talked about this guy earlier. It was O'Brien. Like they hadn't really met before, but he knew that, that O'Brien was kind of off, you know, he, in in the quick times, they, they were in the same room, he could catch glimpses, and in his head, Winston thought that O'Brien wasn't really drinking the Kool-Aid, that there was something different about him, and he was just waiting for a moment to talk, and like we mentioned earlier, even parts of his diary were dedicated, not explicitly, but uh, Winston thought that if someone should read it, it should be O'Brien, so he dedicated parts of his journal to him. They, they, they got the chance to talk. He invited him to over to his house. He was a member of the inner party, so that means he had a high position in the government. And uh, Winston went with Julia to, to his apartment, a big spacious loft in, in a fancy quarter of London. There, they, they talked for a little bit, they introduced themselves, he had servants, and he confessed to them that he was actually part of the Brotherhood. Yes, the Brotherhood existed. That was the secret underground rebel organization led by Emmanuel Goldstein. And it was real, he was a member of it, and wanted to recruit them because he knew that they were also rebels. He asked them what he made 
them basically say their vows <laughs> or their their pledge of allegiance to the brotherhood he asked them what they were willing to do he asked them if they were ready to uh, steal for the brotherhood to commit sabotage to murder people you know to commit suicide if it was asked of them <laughs> to he asked them if they if if they were ready to throw acid in children's faces for the sake of the brotherhood you know, uh, lose a limb, undergo plastic surgery, and they were just agreeing with everything, not 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 asking any questions. Yeah, I don't know. That that was a little strange, because I think that that's yeah. It you're you're right in saying like their vows. It's like their super grim dark vows to <laughs> to just commit atrocities to go against the parties. But I mean, I guess you know that's. I I think that maybe Winston had only you know the diary but he wanted to do so much more and maybe th this is his chance to do it and he didn't want to mess it up you know <laughs> well <laughs> i would never miss a chance to throw acid in a chance <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna clip that out i'm going to keep that forever just in case just in case yeah <laughs> There was one thing they did not agree on, and that was uh, never seeing each other again. So as soon as O'Brien asked them the question, like, are you prepared to just step outside each other's life and never see each other again? Julia immediately interrupted him, saying no. Like, that was a line she did not want to cross. Winston, however, uh, hesitated a little bit before answering no as well. So yeah, that was a, an interesting moment there as well. It's an argument for what you said before of not really of they not really being in love but just sort of using each other yeah that's the thing it's um i think that yeah sure maybe they think they love each other but it's it's one of these things where we're talking about newspeak if you don't have the word to describe the feeling that you have is that is it really that word so you know maybe they're saying they love each other but they just really don't but they just don't have the word to have what they feel about each other maybe um yeah yeah they they settled on the details they knew that they were going to be alone like nobody's going to help to help uh come to help them they would never know how much how, who is a part of the brotherhood or how many members it has they wouldn't be helped if they got caught and o'brien told them this very explicitly that the best thing the brotherhood could do for them if they get caught is to smuggle in a razor into their prison cell once they get caught like not even if it's just when they get caught so but this really didn't bother them because winston and julia both knew that they were dead a long time ago like they were already so deep in this that there was just no way of going back so they doubled down and uh, went with it yeah so o'brien tells winston that in a few days uh, he'll receive a copy of the book the book which is essentially the manifesto written by Emmanuel Goldstein, the leader of the Brotherhood. And it described the current state of the world, um, how it came to be that way, and what the plan was to destroy the society that they lived in. Just as O'Brien said, uh, Winston gets a copy of the book. He goes into his little hideout in the antique shop and started reading the Emmanuel Goldstein manifesto. Damn. Yep, and... That's about it for part one of our 1984 series. Nice. In our next, yeah, absolutely. It's been, I think it's been, you know, really interesting talk. You know, people, I think, especially in America, because 1984 is seen as sort of a high school book, people don't really 
pick it up afterwards. But really going into it again, I've really, really enjoyed reading it. Same. So what are we going to talk about in our next episode? Our next episode, well, we're going to be talking about what, in our opinion, really makes this book a millennial must-read. Uh, we're going to be getting into the Goldstein Manifesto, how it affects the lives of Winston, Julia, and O'Brien, and talk about how, what happens when you defy Big Brother. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah, there, there was a right, lot well, to unpack in this episode, and I hope, well, it sure made me reflect on, on some current issues and make me think deeper on, on certain stuff. So I hope uh, our audience can have the same pleasure of questioning reality. <laughs> All right, everybody. So you can follow us at Millennial Must Reads on Facebook, Millennial Must Reads on Instagram, that's no spaces, and Millennial Must Reads at gmail.com if you want to get in contact with us or give us any suggestions for books. All right, so that's a wrap for our inaugural podcast. I'm Gabe. I'm Jose. And we'll catch you on the flip side of the page.